0: Father, and to the Son, and
1: to
0: the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill Lord the hearts Lord of thy faithful and kindle them in the fire of thy love.
1: Set forth thy spirit, spirit and they, they shall be created, and, and thou shalt renew the face of the, of the earth. earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy, Holy Ghost, grant us by the same spirit to
0: be truly wise and ever to rejoice Lord. in His consolation. Through Christ our, our Lord. Lord. Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And
1: may the souls of the faithful departed to through the, the mercy, mercy of God, God rest in, in
0: peace. peace. Amen. And the mercy of God rest in us. the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the
1: Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you?
0: Very fine, Tom.
1: Yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks Good. for being here. Father, I'd like to start tonight with, uh, with a video that we have received from several of our viewers. They, they sent us the same link to this, uh, just a, a shortened clip of this Dr. Stanley Plotkin, who we referenced on uh, our recent videos concerning vaccines. And in this, this video, it's, um, actually a, a, a snippet of a deposition for a, a court case that this Dr. Plotkin was involved in. And in in the, the short video, Father, the, uh, He's asked about his research with vaccines and, and that research incorporating the use of aborted fetal cells and, and fetal body parts. And uh, he, he says that um, through just one study that they used, I, I believe it was 76 aborted mm-hmm. fetuses and all parts of them, the heart, the tongue, the skin, the liver, everything essentially, <clears throat> So, Father, what is what are your thoughts on this, on, on Dr. Placken admitting that, that in this research on vaccines, that they used all of these aborted fetal cells and body parts? And again, this is only one study throughout the countless studies that he did throughout his career. So what's your thought on this, Father? Does this change anything?
0: Well, it does. In my mind, it does quite a bit, actually. Uh, it shows that there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation, as the Soviets... Uh, Decided to define it uh, precisely to de- to to deceive people, right? So, uh, when, from what I had read before, it uh, the the case was made that these abortions were not committed for the sake of providing uh, fetal body parts for research. The fact is, though, that that is not true. As a matter of fact, um, the same good soul who sent us that link to the video of Dr. Stanley Plotkin's testimony, his deposition, uh, concerning his own research. Uh, the uh, the same person who sent us that also uh, sent a statement because she had worked in the field of... Uh, uh, of uh, uh, well, actually, she hadn't been actually using fetal cells, but she knew many of the researchers who were using routinely fetal cells. And uh, she said that in order to have these cells useful for research, they have to be alive. She said the children who are aborted in this way uh, have to be alive. They have to be alive when they take these cells from them. <clears throat> it's just, for example, when you take an organ from from an organ donator, right? uh, from an organ donor, uh, the, the organ has to be alive for them to take the organ and to put it into another body, right? So uh, her point was that these babies, just as the donor, an adult donor, need to be alive when these cells are taken. So not only is this an abortion and the fetal cells are somehow frozen and kept to later use, she said these things need to be uh, used fresh, which means that, that they need to be used while still living and attached to a living being. So she said that this is uh, not generally uh, made clear. We know this is true. We've known quite some time now that it's true of an adult donor, but I don't know that it's really been uh, made clear that this applies to the the fetal tissue that is used also. Uh, in, in using such, for vaccine purposes, you know, I mean, they can take, uh, the, the cells from a, a child's lungs or something. They can look at it under a microscope and do something with that. But we're talking about research now. And she says the point is that with research like this, you have to have living cells it has to come from a living child. So, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this information changes the whole picture, right? And I think if people go to that link and they look at the uh, the brief testimony, by the way the testimony of Dr. Slotkin was not uh, brief. This particular section is a brief section, but it's very, very very telling. Uh, even shocking. Uh, the point where he says he's an atheist and some say he'll go to hell for this, but that's okay with him. Um, it's, uh, it's very evil. Very evil. And... Uh, you know, they keep in stressing that there were just, um, cell lines and two children who were aborted long, long ago and originally had nothing to do with the research, right? The research came after, but we find out that this is not true. This is a, about as horrific as it can get, uh, along the, the lines of the mad scientist, <laughs> um, experimenting on living uh, human beings and living human cells, from living human beings. <clears throat> so, yes, Tom, I'd say this is a very uh, much a... Uh, it changes my my thought on the whole thing. I, I'm very grateful to those who sent that information, too. And uh, I know that they did further research because they were not aware of the. evidently they were not aware of this testimony of Dr. Slotkin. Uh, but in the course of following up on the video, uh, on our vaccine video, they found this, they sent this to the and I'm very grateful to them for sending it to us. I want to find out whatever information we can find to get sure. the truth
1: out there. Sure. So, Father, does this mean that you can unequivocally state that no Catholic should receive any vaccines? I would say
0: uh, of these vaccines, I... I, I you know, in in moral theology you have to think things through, and there are principles that are given to you that are Catholic moral theology, uh moral theological principles, and they are given in uh they're given by moral theologians and in, in theological uh tra- treatises and so approved by the church. And um, at this point I don't see how I could advise anyone to, to use this. And I think there's a very strong case that would have to be made that there would be immoral would be immoral to use it. Okay. Um and I, I think if one sees this video, I think one will understand exactly why I'm saying what I'm saying.
1: But, Father, what about the statement that the, the Vatican put out some years ago? I believe it was, it was authored by, um, at that time, Cardinal Ratzinger. And he essentially said that, you know, this the, the evil act right. of the abortion is so far removed from those who would receive the vaccine that there is essentially no moral guilt, no moral blame to be placed on them. What's your thought on that?
0: Well, the question is complicity. I mean if you're complicit in the evil act, okay? And if the the act of scientific research follows upon an evil act that happens independent of that research, okay. But it the, the evilness of the act is independent of the research, it's just the results are there. Um uh provided for the for the research for the sake of doing some good. Uh, some real good. Well, I mean, there are questions about complicity. There are questions of cooperation of the evil perpetrated by another, and one's own moral guilt in compl- uh, being complicit in an immoral act of another person, um, and that's what the Vatican was talking about under, under Cardinal Ratzinger. Right? But uh, you know, the, the disassociation, as it were, from this of this medical research from the abortion. It's based on the idea that the abortions took place independently, they had nothing to do with the research, they would have happened anyway, the babies were dead, the cells were there, and the scientists thought, well, we'll use them to accomplish some good. That's not the case. That is not the scenario. As you can tell from the video of Dr. Plotkin, I mean, this research goes on. And even now, I mean, our our, uh, informer who sent us this video uh, has told us, you know, when she was younger, in, in her younger days, she was doing research not on fetal cells, but there were other researchers she was working with who would do working on living fetal cells. And um, this, this goes on now. So it's not a matter of so, so something's done, finished, and there's nothing we can do to fix it right now. It's a matter of an evil continuing. They're perpetuating this evil. And um, this is extremely important for us to know. They're trying to cover it over. But I think, uh, if, if you, uh, see the video of Dr. Plotkin and then use that as a springboard to go on from there, I think you see that the picture is not what they're telling us, that they're deceiving us. This is not a shock. I mean, people who would do these things are not shy about deceiving other people, right? Mm-hmm. Any more than, um, those who would murder babies and abortions would shrink from lying about it, right? Right. A little lie or a big lie to them is nothing in compared to what they're doing routinely in murdering the children, so um the lies of the abortionists are all part and parcel to the overall evil of their mindset
1: right and father obviously you're you're not a scientific expert on this but but what is the as far as you can answer this, what is the reason behind? Using the aborted fetal cells, could this not be accomplished with some other type of cells? Why is it necessary to get these aborted fetal cells? And if well, it... they want to grow them.
0: They want to grow, and these fetal cells are especially able to grow, survive, multiply.
1: Okay. They
0: and... they can multiply. Um, you know, I understand that uh, adult cells might might uh, undergo the process of whatever mitosis, or whatever, and and, and uh, reproduce themselves 40 times or something. Uh, depends on the telomeres in the cell. And again, I'm not a scientist nor a medical person, but um, but these fetal cells evidently, I forget exactly, I used to know the name of them, but um, they can multiply three or four times as many, okay. as often, mm-hmm. you know,
1: so to speak. So
0: they have these cell lines that go on and on.
1: Okay. Uh, but theoretically, if it is possible to... Uh, to to make these same vaccines with other types of cells, maybe those from a, a child who naturally died or something. Or like. how
0: about fetal cord blood? Sure, there you go. Yeah. Okay, I mean, you, they get stem cells from various things. They don't right. have to take them from little right. newborn babies or right. babies in the womb. They don't have to take these cells from them. Right. Um, they can do a lot of things with cells these days, and they will get fetal cord blood, and they will use it mm-hmm. for a lot of research that, I don't know, but it would seem to be uh, that they could make that work if they wanted to. Right.
1: And that would, do you think that would be a, a more viable option? You
0: wouldn't be killing a baby to do that. I mean, the, 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 the um, umbilical cord is there and it's going to be discarded, burned, right? right? It's considered medical waste, I think, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, after it's separated from the child, it's no longer, it's not a living thing, right? Right. But when it is, uh, you know, uh, separated from the child, it it is still there, it is still, you might say, viable, right?
1: Right. Okay. Well, Father, uh, let's, let's move on then uh, to some other news. There's been a, uh, a lot of hay made about this open letter uh, sent to Francis accusing him of heresy, and there's been yeah. a... Uh, Quite a few prominent theologians and others who have signed this letter accusing Francis of heresy. And uh, the Society of St. Pius X, they, they recently put out a statement regarding this letter. Uh, after some time, it's actually on their FSSPX News website. And just a, a quote from their statement, Father, they say that this open letter is a waste of time, an action producing little effect The fruit of a legitimate indignation, but which falls into excess at the risk of lessening its good influence. Moreover, the danger of this approach may be in inducing its authors to deviate from the ongoing fight. We risk being captivated by the present evil, forgetting that it has roots, that it is a logical result of a tainted process at its origin. Like a pendulum, some believe they can magnify the recent past to better denounce the present, including counting on the magisterium of the popes of the council, from Paul VI to Benedict XVI to oppose Francis. This is the position of many conservatives who forget that Pope Francis is only the drawing out of the consequences of the teachings of the Council and its predecessors. We cannot uproot an evil tree by only cutting off the last branch. What's your reaction to that, Father?
0: It isn't a good reaction. I think that's very poor. Okay. Why? Not only is it very poor, I think it's also very telling. And the story it tells, I think, is very sad. And uh, a bit alarming about the Society of St. Pius X and where they're going, where they're thinking right now. Uh, I think to some extent, it's even nonsensical. Um, to say that that open letter, uh, denouncing, uh, Francis for open heresy to the Novus Ordo bishops, <laughs> to say that is a waste of time. Um, well, you know, one, we might argue whether it's a waste of time depending on the practical results, right? But the, the men who signed that letter and sent it out to the bishops accusing Francis of heresy said, well, at least some of them uh, said that their purpose was not to uh, start an, let's say, an uprising of the, of the Nova Ordo bishops against Francis or whatever, but for the historical record that something needed to be said so that uh, history at least records that there were those who recognized Francis's heresies and denounced them, regardless of what the bishops would do about it, the, the so-called Novus Ordo bishops. <clears throat> so, uh, now, if whoever is the author of this statement of the Society of St. Pius X wants to argue that point, that, well, there's no point in making this historical record, reflect that people intervened and accused Francis of heresy. They can argue that point all they want. Uh, The fact is that these men who did this thought it was significant and very important to go on record as saying that they denounced the heresy of Francis. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the Society of St. Pius X is responding on, I'm sorry to say, um, very pragmatically, It's a pragmatic response only because they say, well, these bishops aren't going to stop this. And it's an overreaction anyway. They they actually, in there, I think, used the expression that they were kind of going excessive, they were excessive Mm -hmm. in their denunciation of Francis. So evidently what they're saying is uh, that the letter goes too far in denouncing uh, what Francis says. Um, Which, uh, you know, others would say it certainly doesn't go far enough. And, uh, if we're going to tailor our actions according to what the Novus Ordo bishops are going to do and say, well, something's a waste of time because the Novus Ordo bishops aren't going to follow through and take care of the problem. Again, this just shows a rather, I think, pathetic mindset in the society of St. Pius X right now. Now, the, the matter of the letter, um, the matter of the letter itself is something that we should talk about a bit. Okay. But the Society of St. Pius' the to reaction to it, is another question. And I would say that when the author of this, whoever it is, I don't know if it's credited to anyone, uh, the uh, says that, you know, there are those who look at the, the deeds of uh, Paul VI, uh, John Paul II, and so on, and uh, see the origins of the present day, and they try to announce what's happening now in light of what led up to it. And it seems to say also, but there are those now who want to condemn what Francis is doing and retroactively condemn everything that led to it by condemning what Francis is doing. Um, I don't see what he, why he's making an issue of that. He, he finally says that um, to condemn a present evil isn't helpful because just chopping off a branch of the evil now doesn't really go back and solve the problem. Well, understandably so. But pointing out the evil fruit of something, as our Lord pointed out, it's the root of of an evil tree. This is what they're trying to say, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're just saying, well, Francis is alone in this. It's not John Paul II. It's not Paul VI. It's just Francis and what he's doing, and we need to look at that. But nonetheless, I mean, our Lord's own words in the gospel talking about a, a bad fruit produces, a bad tree produces evil fruit, right? And so, if they're pointing out the evil fruit of the modernist tree here, this is a very good thing, because one can follow that fruit back through across the branch, right back to the trunk and right back to the roots of modernism, and expose the whole evil tree this way. So, I I don't understand why the Society of St. Pius X doesn't seem to get this. Something else that concerns me is, why did it take them so long to come out and make a statement? It's as though they're sitting back and watching what everybody else is going to say. <clears throat> they do this over and over again, you know. Something happens, Francis says something, there's a reaction among the Novus Ordo conservatives, and maybe a week later, or ten days later, suddenly you get some kind of a statement from the Society of St. Pius X pronouncing on this, but, but the Society of St. Pius position is on this. And it's basically just sort of negotiating and navigating what everybody else has said. Right? And it 's as though they're they're almost trying to um, play the uh, uh, play the field <clears throat> it's, it's very disappointing uh, to say the least, but i wouldn't say it's surprising and the, the reason I say that is just some, someone gave me this within the last week, and it 's actually a statement of Father Peter Scott, who is the former um, well, he was formerly with the Angelus Magazine of the Society of Saint Pius X. He offered the questions and answers. Now, this came out also on the same website, right? The Society of Saint, the FSSPX website. It's dated February six, two thousand eighteen. But this is a reprint of something he wrote, and um, he talks about the priests who have left the Society of Saint Pius X. His question is, what are we to think of priests who have left the Society of St. Pius X? And he goes through this, this whole, this whole, uh, I don't know what to call it, actually. One might call it a diatribe, I suppose, explaining how those who uh, made an engagement to the Society of St. Pius X are bound by that in conscience. It's no uh, less than a vow and it's moral force. Absolutely not true. And, um, that, um, If they left the society and they're on their own now, they're independent priests and they can't function, they have to stop functioning as priests, he says, unless they join some other organization, right? Right. So they have to be gone to an organization. He doesn't even make the distinction between an organization in the new church, an organization, you know, a, a traditional Catholic organization. He doesn't give any canonical explanation of that. But then at the very end, if... I mean, he he goes on talking about this Oath of Fidelity, which came in much later, by the way, long after Archbishop Lefebvre established the Society of St. Pius. uh, It would have to be uh, at least going on 15 years after, if they had this Oath of Fidelity, which was not a vow of of obedience of any kind. So again, I mean, he's trying to make much of this, that that the priests who've left them are guilty of all these terrible things, and they must stop functioning as priests immediately. He makes a very flimsy case, although I think to people who don't know any better, it could be very compelling. But you get to the end of what he says here, and you realize, wait a minute, they, if, if Father Scott's mentality, if his view, reflects the the official viewpoint of the Society of St. Pius X. They're in serious trouble. This is what he says. The priests who have left the Society of St. Pius X to become, quote, independent are to be avoided at all costs. Those who have left to join a diocese or novus ordo or indult community have committed a serious offence if they have not followed the canonical procedures and have denied their declaration of fidelity. So notice, okay, the Society of St. Pius X to this day is not recognized canonically by the, by Francis or by the Vatican, right? But they, he <coughs> actually <coughs> touts the, the importance of that recognition. Which is what the society really wants and is still trying to get. But here he says that priests who have left the society, which is no canonical recognition, really, I mean, as a society from the Vatican, those who have left the society and joined, let's say, a diocese, Novus Ordo, or a Novus Ordo or Indult community, committed a serious offense only if they've not followed the canonical procedures to do that. And if they've denied their declaration of fidelity to the society, which comes takes precedence over seeking seeking you know to rejoin the canonically approved Novus Ordo, so he's saying this is actually the society is is uh, their their declaration to the society takes precedence precedence over rejoining the Novus Church. And uh, it would be wrong for them to do so if they didn't follow canonical procedures. But then he goes on and says this. However, they can be considered as having regularized their canonical status in the church. However, he says. Okay? So even if they have not followed the canonical procedures, and even if they have denied their declaration of fidelity to the society, still, if they've joined joined a diocese or the Novus Ordo, or in community, they have regularized their canonical status in the church by joining the Novus Ordo. Now that is an enormity for a traditional Catholic that is absolutely incomprehensible. Um, and he goes on and says, and he ends with this, the same principles are consequently to be applied to them as to other members of such communities. So, the same principles are applied to the Society of St. Pius X members who leave the Society of St. Pius X and join the Novus Ordo as are to be applied to the other members of the Novus Ordo communities. So, and he doesn't go on to explain what are the principles to be applied to them, except for the fact that they have regular status. they regularly, uh, they have, as he says, regularized their canonical status in the Church, by joining the Novus Ordo. This is the mentality of the Society of St. Pius X, and this is what is motivating them right now. Um, they It's a contradiction. They, they're contradicting themselves. They do not have regular status. They have not regularized their canonical status with the Church in their own mm-hmm. statement. Right? But, those who have left them to join the Nova have regularized their canonical status in the capital C Church. Mm-hmm. What's left? Why do they even bother? Why do they even pretend anymore? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's uh, it's a great concern for all the people involved in that.
1: Sure, and I think just um, just this, you know, this this open this their reaction to the open letter that, that we just referenced. I think in the end, it just really it. Just shows the nonsensical uh, nature of their position. When he, he, he stresses over and over again, you know that these uh, the, Va- the second Vatican Council was evil. The fruit of this was evil. And the the popes that have come after that, no sort of popes, they've done all these evil things. They even call Francis a, a branch of this evil tree, mm-hmm. and yet they're they're trying to reconcile. They're trying to make up with this evil tree. They're trying to they're, they're trying to join forces with this evil <laughs> tree. They're trying to become a branch of now, this their, evil their tree.
0: Their poti- their position, their position is. Is, 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 is at a root a contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. The starting point mm-hmm. is, a, is a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And whatever they say then, and all their commentaries on the situation of the Church today, there are multiple implicit and some out-and-out explicit contradictions. And uh, this is what it is. They want to make a separate peace with the Novus This they were accused of, actually, by some of the uh, indult groups who said that the Society of St. Pius X is trying to get a, a kind of in the back door of the Vatican and close them out, get them shut down and have the Society of St. Pius X alone recognized by the Vatican. And uh, so they, they see it, too. I mean, it's, it's not just uh, me, <laughs> not just I or other, a few others. Uh, they they see their contradictions in, in the, the the way flagrant contradictions the way they proceed.
1: Mm-hmm. And Father, in this this short passage that you just read, there I mean it, it seems that he's uh, he's making a blatant contradiction where he he talks about that you know how they they want to be regularized and how this is a good thing and all of this and then he. He talks about those who leave and you know even if they join a nova sordo church you know they or diocese they've essentially done a good thing and it seems that he's essentially um, just totally dismantling what is you would think would be the position of the society of saint Pius X. it seems that he's saying it would be better for them to leave the society and join a diocese a, dio- a local <coughs> nova sordo diocesan um, yeah. parish well Tom, especially since he says it doesn't it make there. any sense father peter scott says it
0: in, the, in his little monologue there uh, that, um, uh, phew, I don't know if it's a monologue, but in any case, that they'd have to follow the canonical procedures. The kind of canonical procedures that he outlines there are getting permission from their superiors. So they would have to get the permission from the Society of St. Pius the 10th superiors to leave them to go join the Novus Ordo. And if they've done that, that makes it okay. Right. Then they're regularized. Now, no, this this doesn't make any sense. For a traditional Catholic whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but with regard, to, by the way, with regard to this um, to this letter, okay, this letter accusing Francis of being heretical, there are those who are saying that the case is overstated, of course there are many who are saying the case is understated, that Francis is a heretic. But, you know, it's important to point out that when we listen to the statements of Francis, um, there, there are a number of theological censures that are given that are short about not heresy. Okay. If, uh, some might be familiar with the English edition Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Dr. Ludwig Ott. O-T-T I imagine some of our lay people have this in their libraries. Okay. It's, it's actually a translation of, uh, Dr. Ludwig Ott's Grundris der Dogmatik, which is the original. Unfortunately, the English translation is a very poor translation. At times it breaks down entirely. But early on in the edition here, uh, we find there's a a section in the introduction called Theological Censures," And it points out that uh, by a theological censure is meant the judgment which characterizes a proposition touching Catholic faith or moral teaching as contrary to faith or at least as doubtful. If it be pronounced by the teaching authority of the Church, it is an authoritative or judicial judgment, a censura authentica or judicialis. If it be pronounced by theological science, it is a private doctrinal judgment, a censura doctrinalis. The usual censures are the following, heretical propositions. Propositio heretica, an heretical proposition, signifies a proposition as opposed to formal dogma. But there's also a proposition proximate to heresy, which is, a again, a censure of the Church to condemn a proposition as proximate to heresy, which signifies that the proposition is opposed to a truth which is proximate to the faith, a sententia fidei proxima, as they call it. But then there's also a proposition savoring of or is suspect of heresy. A propositia heresim sapiens. Or de heresy suspecta. So you can have a proposition of Francis or anyone else that actually savors of heresy. Now, if they wanted to <clears throat> denounce Francis and say, okay, he's suspect of heresy or his statements are savoring of heresy, I don't know that anybody would have objected to that. Okay. But they objected. There are people who are objecting to the charge of heresy. Okay. Um, and it's understandable why, because there are consequences, right? And, um, you know, but if, if they had said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's at least charge him with propositions that are savoring or of heresy or suspect of heresy, maybe they could have started a discussion in that. Okay. So, um, There are propositions, there are erroneous propositions. Uh, There are false propositions. Temerarious or bold and audacious propositions against the faith, right? Offensive to pious ears. Certainly, Francis is guilty of a plethora of statements against pious ears, right? Practically every time he speaks. So there are all kinds of theological censures they could have wielded uh, in their letter against Francis. But they chose heresy, and there was reaction against it by some of the conservatives, by saying, "Well, that's really overstating the case. You can't really make a hard, cold case." Like Father Brian Harrison said, "Well, now you know it has to be. It has to be uh, um, pertinacious. So we have to question him and find out what he really thinks. Is he pertinacious or not? For example, when he when he said with the Imam that God wills the multiplicity of religions." not distinguish between true religion and false religion, right? The one true faith and all the false faiths. And uh, there were those who said, well, that's heresy. But then uh, uh, Bishop uh, Schneider said, well, isn't this what you meant? And Francis said, well, you could say that. <laughs> that God allows or tolerates, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, let's say all other religions, the multiplicity of religions. <clears throat> that isn't what Francis was saying, but that's what Bishop Schneider could say. And you know, right. that's what Francis said. So again, all of that would play into this idea of Father Brian Harrison as far as Francis's pertinacity in heresy. And then you get into this all this big hullabaloo, you know, well, is he pertinacious? Is he not pertinacious? The fact is he's giving enormous scandal to faithful. He's giving enormous scandal, and he's he is um attacking the faith. He is definitely attacking the faith. He's attacking not only the faith and its doctrines. He's attacking the virtue of faith in the souls of the people, what's left of it, even now. And um, there, there are ways to make that point. The reason why even some of the conservatives were, were wanting to back up and back away from that is because the idea is, well, now, now you might be hinting at sedevacantism. because if you're saying that he's a radical, well, now you might be saying, okay, there are canonical penalties for heresy, and you might be saying that Francis isn't the Pope. And you want the bishops to say he's not the Pope, the Novus Erdo bishops, which they're not going to do anyway. Um, so there are those, <clears throat> again, who dictate all of their behavior, all of their reactions by that question. Are, you question. are you calling into question France as being a Pope? And they reason backwards, well, you can't do that no matter what you say, No matter what the reality is, no matter what the facts are, you cannot mm-hmm. Im- even imply or suggest that that is true. Um, this this is what I denounced as sedi negantism, and uh, these are the people who neg- neg- who who reject absolutely sedi vacantism. Uh, but they are sedi Negantists and they are doing an enormous amount of damage. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I you know they're trying to kind of get this idea across to the people that you cannot question even question Francis's legitimacy. As a vicar of Christ on earth. And, uh, but they're doing actually, well, there are several things they're doing that, are, that they're attacking the church by saying this. They are attacking the church. They are functioning as enemies of the faith by, by saying that. Because number one, they're admitting, they're saying, look, uh, the church has had these popes before, they did very bad things. And you look at how the church dealt with this, they didn't depose any of these people. At the same time, these people are saying, but Francis is different. He's gone farther than, than any of the rest have gone. So now we are in a, an unprecedented situation. And they have the nerve then to turn around and say, but we will tell you what the answer is. In other words, they're, they're, they're saying, look, the church had to rule on all of these other decisions. The church had to rule on all of these other cases. But rather than saying to all of these people here they disagree with, we must wait for the Church to make a ruling on this, they are presuming to tell us in advance what the Church's ruling is going to be. And their their ruling is, this is totally unacceptable. Even though they admit that this is something that the Church hasn't judged before, a case like this. Nonetheless, uh, having acknowledged the fact that, yes, we have to follow the judgment of the Church, and yes, this case is unprecedented. Nonetheless, we're going to make a judgment, and you are anathema. You know, if you question Francis being the Pope, you're anathema. So they're, they're putting themselves in the place of the Magisterium of the Church in doing that. That's doing the Church a grave disservice, right. and they have no right to do that. Any more than the hard-line City of Acountas have the right to dogmatically impose their position. So they're both in the same boat. As far as I'm concerned, they're guilty of exactly the same problem. And they're, they are, uh, they're attacking, I, I think, I, am sorry to say they are actually attacking the church in different ways, but they have the same mindset. The Sede Negantis and the Sede Vacantis have exactly the same mindset. My position is dogmatic and everyone has to agree with me. But they're also doing something else. They're actually empowering Francis. They're saying that because no one may dare question the fact that Francis has the power of the papacy, he can do anything he pleases to the church. And so everything he does, we have to let him do. We have to sit back and watch him do that. If he's spreading gasoline all around and throwing matches everywhere, we have to say, well, he's the pope. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing to be done about it. That was Bishop Schneider's uh, position, really. Well, you know, is there, if he's a radical pope, there's, doesn't nothing, it doesn't matter anybody, who cares, because there's nothing you can do about it. We just have to let him do what he does. And uh, the fact is, Francis is uh, destroying, he's attacking the actual structure of the Church, including the papacy. That's why I call it, say, negantism, because he is actually dismantling the very office that he claims to hold. His primary attack is against the papacy itself, and the or who, who are saying he's the pope and you can't question that. These are the ones who are making it possible. They're empowering him to do this. They are giving him the the weaponry to attack the church. Um, finally, by doing this, also, it's kind of interesting how it's happening. They they consider themselves conservatives. They consider themselves Catholics. They may even consider themselves traditional Catholics. But the policy that they're pursuing actually results in the complete victory of modernism. You know why? They are saying that you don't even have to have the faith or believe the doctrines of the Catholic faith to be a pope. You don't even have to believe the Catholic faith. You can openly deny doctrines of the Catholic faith. You can even attack the very idea of doctrine. The whole idea of propositions of faith and still be the Pope. Now, if that's true of a Pope, that he doesn't even have to have the faith, well, what do you say about the rank and file? What about the priests? Do they have to have the faith? If the Pope doesn't have to have the faith, why would they? Why would the lay people have to have the faith? So you see what you've just done. Just like the borders, you've destroyed the borders. You know, basically their message is this. The St. Indigontis, who are against Francis in terms of, they want to denounce, you know, his, his false teachings, but they're still, they, they're still insisting that he's the Pope and he has the, the authority and the powers of the papacy. Uh, the result of this is that they are negating even the need for the faith, to have the faith, to be a member of the Church. Now, is that not ecumenism? Is this is not ecumenism done, gone crazy. You don't have to have the Catholic faith to be a mem- members of the Church. Okay? You've just destroyed all the borders. And, um, you know, then who, who would we exclude? Who would we exclude? True. You can't exclude Martin Luther. Francis has already declared that he's a Lutheran. In his belief of uh, justification, he's already exonerated Luther. John Paul II already did that. He called him a, a great religious man. You know, he he praised Luther, right? So uh, the Vatican has had a concordat of agreement with the Lutheran, not the Lutheran uh, religious bodies, but in principle in matters of faith they have. So. Um, I mean, why, why on earth are we supposed to now say that the faith matters at all? If it doesn't matter in a pope, then why would it matter for anybody? And, ultimately, that's what ecumenism is. It doesn't. And that's what all of these, all of these conservative bloggers and all of these um, Stylionagontists are all agreed on. You don't need the faith to have the faith. To even be a pope, right. so there's nothing left anymore of either the papacy. The role of Peter was to be converted himself to begin with, and then to confirm the faith in the brethren. That's what our Lord said. These Satanagogans deny the words of Christ in that. So I, I just think that they they are actually. At, at this time, the more, uh, the worse enemy than the out and out flagrant modernists. Because they are the ones who are allowing the modernists to do what they're doing. Just as the modernists are allowing the homosexuals to take over the places of power in their church. So the sitting the conservative, Novosortes, are the ones who are allowing the modernists to continue their rampage and complete their rampage. Finally putting the, uh, putting the, uh, exclamation point at the end of Vatican II.
1: -hmm. Father, I think it's so important to make the point that you referenced in regards to scandal because, you know, it's so easy to get hung up on these questions of, oh, this, Francis' most recent statement, was that heretical or was it not? How could we interpret it this way or that way? And someone even recently remarked that, you know, if Francis got up tomorrow and said God does not exist, he would instantly have defenders who would say, well, he, you know, God doesn't exactly exist in the way What's that... Uh, what do you mean by God? What do you mean by God? we exist? To, exist. To, to, exactly. Like Bill Clinton. Depends on the definition <laughs>
0: right.
1: That's exactly right.
0: And,
1: and there, it's so easy to get hung up on silly questions like that and, and just totally <clears> miss the big the big picture of, okay, yeah, you can, you can kind of scrutinize everything on this really, really fine <clears> level like that, but just look at the big picture and say... What what responsibility does a man like Francis have? How how are just his, his general his his people? How are they going to take this? Of course, if Francis says God does not exist, the the average the average Joe is going to take that to mean literally God does not exist. He's not going to distinguish and have some kind of really fine twisted uh, you know really particular definition of this. It's it's not. And so you have to to think about things. Just how is the average person going going to take this? And I think that point is so often overlooked. And so there, there's so many um, people who, who who want to be good, it seems, and and they just get hung up on on these silly silly particulars. And like you say, Francis is just over here laying waste to what's left of of, of the church, and he's you know one heretical statement after another. And we're kind of mm. you know there's so many over here just arguing about the the particulars of it, the silly particulars mm. of it, while he's just destroying everything. Mm. And uh, well, it comes down
0: to, Tom. I mean, if if <clears throat> The Pope does not have to have the Catholic faith, if he can publicly deny it, okay, even by rash, even by being suspected of heresy, right? even by statements against pious, offensive to pious ears, and even by by propositions that are approximate to the faith, right, contrary to the faith. If the Pope doesn't need to have the faith, who does. Nobody does. Ecumenism has triumphed the modernists of one in the Novus Ordo. And it is these, um, these conservative New Order bloggers who style themselves traditionalists who are the ones who are actually officiating at the, at the burial of the church. Uh, we know they can't because let's face it. I mean, there are traditional Catholics who are really traditional, who judge in terms of what the church has always approved who reject what the Church has always condemned. And um, that's, the faith continues in them, Mm -hmm. regardless of what the... The conservative, they're conservative Novus Ordo, but they are still Novus Ordo, they're still the new order.
1: Right. Father, I thought we could end with some good news here. Uh, I got another quote from Francis, uh, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, recently he said that the freedom of the press and of expression is an important index of the health of a country. And uh, this, he said this in a meeting with, with uh, the, uh, let's see, it was the Foreign Press Association in Italy. And he assured them, the Pope did, I esteem your work. The church esteems your work even when you put the finger in the wound. He quoted John Paul II in support of the press. The church is on your side. So what do you think about that, Father? A little bit of good news there. That Francis is on our side and Francis supports us in our work. What do you think of that? I don't know that
0: he would consider us the press, oh,
1: okay.
0: um, frankly, and frankly, consider what other things he said about the press, things that we cannot say here because they are so obscene, no. I wouldn't want him to consider us the press, okay? Uh, we are not what he considers the press, okay? And uh, enough said here, because uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, the man is obscene in his language and in his thinking, right? People may not understand what I'm talking about, but I can't explain it for any, sure. since you brought that up. Um, but there are some out there who understand exactly what I mean because they've been following and they, they know what I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, the vocabulary that uh, no decent person would use in public he he makes it part of Magisterium. Every time he speaks, he says it's magisterium,
1: right sure.
0: So uh, anyway, it's not.
1: Sure. <laughs> well, Father, anything else you'd like to uh, you'd like to end on before I let you go tonight? Well, Tom, I think we have to get back
0: to the point that we're looking at this modernist construct here, and um, I I hope the statement that was published on the SSPX website it does not represent the official position of the society in, Pius the tenth. But I fear that it does, <clears throat> and I I fear that they're just sort of playing some sort of a political game here. And, uh, you know, I mean, traditional Catholic priests cannot play this game. Uh, there's too many, there are souls at stake, right? Our being faithful to our Lord is at stake here. We cannot play some canonical game with the modernists. We have to realize what modernism is. We have to understand that it is the antithesis of the Catholic faith, okay? It is not just non-Catholic. It is anti-Catholic. It is anti-Catholicism. Modernism has the idea that faith is not what the Catholic Church has always taught. The, the ascent, the supernatural virtue by which the human intellect assents to the truth of divinely revealed truths about God, right? That God has revealed to us, uh, for our, our belief, okay? And these are mysteries that we cannot figure out for ourselves, that God has revealed to us. That is not, that is not what the modernist says. The modernist says that you can't know God with your intelligence, nor can you know even the world around you with your intelligence. But faith comes from an experience held by each individual human being. Each individual has an experience of God. And that for him is the root of his faith. And, uh, not only therefore does that account for all the different faiths in the world, because of all the different experiences of mankind that mankind has of God, and they're all legitimate, and they're all real experiences of God. But this experience changes as time goes on. and evolves, and we are now in the process of evolving together to have the same universal experience. that All mankind will have the same experience of God. that will draw us together in the same faith and the same religion, the one world religion, that will be presided over by the Antichrist. This is where modernism is trying to take us. This is actually where Vatican II is trying to take us. And uh, they believe that Francis is going to actually break down the church to the point where it is going to be absorbed into this one world religion. Perhaps even be uh, the great prophet of the one world religion. And uh, so, you know, we simply have to recognize modernism for what it is and realize we cannot we cannot do this. We can't negotiate with it, and we can't uh, temporize. You know, when it comes to practicing our faith, we have to go back to fact practicing the traditional Catholic faith now. And uh, you know, there there are people who know a great deal about modernism. There are people who know a great deal about liberalism, socialism, communism. There are people who know a lot about all of these isms. But they don't, they don't practice the faith. Um, and the answer is, although they know who the enemy is, they, they do not have a love for God, evidently. So ultimately, we have to realize that we can know all the details about all the evil things going on in the world and still lose our soul. We can know all of the details of the evil things in the world. We can fret and we can denounce, we can point, but we can still lose our souls unless we do what we need to do to be faithful to Christ. And that can only be, be done with, uh, through the virtues of faith and hope and charity. So it is cultivating these virtues in the soul that makes us holy and pleasing to God, that enables us to be in the state of grace. It is incumbent upon every single one of us, therefore, to, uh, to be in the state of grace constantly to do what we need to do, be faithful to our Lord, to live our lives continually in the state of grace. As St. Paul says in St. Peter and St. James recently in his epistles, in his epistle telling us we must uh, live free from the evil, the contamination of the world, and we must also devote ourselves to to doing the, the good works that our Lord asks of us. So, uh, we have to do the positive things that our wants us to do, and we have to stay, hold ourselves, uh, from the uncleanness of the world, spotless from the impurities of the world. It's, uh, it's a supernatural act, a supernatural deed to be in the state of grace. It's a supernatural reality, but by the grace of God, it is possible and thank God it is, through the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed for us, that might, means that we have to draw that grace from the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Right. The true traditional Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So anyway, that's what it comes down to. It's not just about about talking these about these evil things. We have to know what they are, we have to understand them. But unless we're doing what is right, we're we're still not pleasing to God.
1: That's right. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. God bless you.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. God bless you, too. Thank
1: Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.